0: Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. My name is John Potter. Before we get into this episode, I want to just tell you a little bit about it because this is a special episode that was recorded live the other day. It's uh, by one of our panellists, David McKenzie, who was doing a big fundraiser for his uh, challenging Glasgow Kelvin uh, in the Holyrood elections. And it's all about the legacy of Roy Jenkins and the SDP. And he's got some fantastic speakers, including Vince Cable, Christine Jardin, Wendy Chamberlain, Dick Newby. So it's well worth your listening, And thank you very much to David for supplying us this video. So uh, you'll be able to listen along to the conversation. It's absolutely fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks very much for tuning in. So
1: for people on this call who don't know me, my name's David McKenzie. Um, I actually joined the Liberal Democrats back in 2019, um, and I joined the party from Labour, where I'd been since I was 15 years old. And Roy Jenkins has always been something of a a political hero to myself, and I'd taken great interest in the SDP previously, uh, and also Roy Jenkins and his legacy as well. Um, There's a few things that I like to think are sort of similar between Roy Jenkins and I and I would never compare myself to such a huge stature and figure within the Liberal Democrats and the SDP and in in fact even in the Labour Party but a couple of things similar obviously we were both in the Labour Party for a number of years like Roy Jenkins my father also served as a Labour MP Um, I come from quite a working class area uh, like Roy Jenkins did in Wales Um, and he's been all around the country before he became the MP for Glasgow uh, for Glasgow Hillhead, I should say, sorry. Um, and similarly, uh, although I was born in Greenock in Scotland, uh, I've lived in parts of England, uh, I've worked in London for a number of years, and I'm now looking to do a bit of a, a homecoming, if you will, and seeing if we can make a bit of a challenge for Glasgow Kelvin at this Scottish Parliament election. So I'm delighted to be joined by a number of great speakers who've agreed to be part of the event. Um, obviously, first of all, we've got Wendy Chamberlain, the MP for North East Fife, who had a fantastic victory in 2019, taking probably the biggest marginal, I think, in the country. And like myself, Wendy and Vince as well, and Dick Newby, who will be joining us, have contributed to this book, The Future of Social Democracy. Although I would say my part is a quite a bit smaller than I think Wendy or Dick or Vince's piece. Um, I only got a tiny little paragraph at the back, but it's I think that comes with the stature. So... Um, it's a great new book. Obviously, everybody that was kind enough to, to purchase a copy that will be sent out to you shortly. Um, and we're also joined by Christine Jardine, the MP, uh, who will be talking a little bit to Dick and Vince about Glasgow Hillhead, the SDP, and Roy Jenkins. And Christine also told me a very interesting fact that one of her first interviews when she was a journalist was with Roy Jenkins while he was the MP for Glasgow Hillhead. So we'd love to hear a bit more about that as well, Christine. So. All being all, Wendy, I'll hand over to you to do a little bit of an introduction to the book, The Future of Social Democracy.
2: Thank you very much, David, and and lovely to see lots of familiar faces uh, on tonight's call, as well as those that I I don't know. Now, David and I have things in common in that we're both from Greenock. And actually, we were on a call recently where we discovered that we went to the same Halls Sweet Shop in Finner Street in Greenock as well. So though we were at Greenock Academy at different at uh, different times I think it's it's fair to say but I'll not go much uh, further there so um it does feel like over this last few months I've really started being to- uh, talking about social democracy um, quite a bit so I joined the Liberal Democrats in 20. 20- uh, 15. Oh, thank you, John. you are like to. Um, in 2015, uh, as I always say, um, crying at Nick Clegg in the telly, but also very soon after mourning the loss of Charles Kennedy. And interestingly, that year was also the year where the social democratic group, democrat group, were formed within the Liberal Democrats, and I do wonder that after our opposition uh, to New Labour and, and dare I the coalition, and um, perhaps there was maybe a sense that the party's social democratic tendencies had got, long been forgotten about. I also spoke, we had a session at Liberal Democrat Federal Conference at the weekend about how can social democracy help the Liberal Democrats. And one of the things I reflected on there was the fact that, you know, when people speak at conference, they often say, as a Liberal. And I wonder whether, you know, we need to be saying a bit more as a social Democrat. But then we know that we lost uh, Tony Greaves this week, very sadly. And I know that in his book, where he talked about uh, the formation of the Liberal Democrats, what the Liberal Democrats called themselves was a was a bone of vast contention. So potentially maybe that's a Pandora's box that I don't want to uh, reopen. But I think there really is an opportunity as we mark um, the 40th anniversary of the Limehouse Declaration um, with the book and also, dare I say it, from a perspective of Covid, and the Liberal Democrat response to COVID, you, you, we could say that we have had a social democratic response as a party. It's been at the heart of our response in terms of what we have called for in relation to government support schemes, et cetera. But, and this is where I sort of on Saturday made a, made a Paul McCartney and John Lennon a joke that actually we work uh, better, or two parts of the party or the two um, backgrounds that we've come from work well together. And we saw that today um, Uh, I um, uh, cast the party's proxy votes in relation to the Coronavirus Act, where we joined um, a number of strange bedfellows in voting against the Coronavirus Act, but did I say that was consistent because we'd voted against the Act in September for many of the civil liberties reasons that we voted against it again today. So, um, you know, that is, um, you know, I think that is very important to me. So. Um, Just talking briefly then about about the book, I've got a copy um, here as well. Um, I was very privileged to be approached by uh, George Kendall and Colin McDougall and asked to co-edit it, but a little like David saying that he had uh, some paragraphs at the back, I'd be fair to say that I did not in any way take uh, a significant role in in, in, in editing. But what I did take a, a role in was contributing the first chapter of the book, Um, which I wrote on after the failed alternative vote referendum, how can electoral reform have a future? And last year I secured my first adjournment debate in the House eh, and it was on the topic of electoral reform. And I think one of the interesting things about that debate is one, obviously where Labour are, but second of all, the fact that I believe electoral reform is actually no longer... um, mainly a progressive issue, though it clearly is a social democratic one. One of the key sort of stats I, I always say is, you know, the Brexit party, as it was then called, biggest impact on the general election in 2019, was depriving its voters of the opportunity to vote for it. And when you look at pressure groups such as Make Votes Matter, and the Brexit party and others have signed up to their good systems agreement. So I think that's one of the, the first things I would say, but the reality is as a party that believes in federalism, that believes in uh, devolving power to communities, the reality is as we would expect to see uh, coalitions, etc., in the future. But one of the things obviously I looked back to and who knew, I was obviously a not, not a member of the party in 2011, but I remember the alternative vote referendum and who knew the unintended consequences of our failure to secure um, success in the AV referendum was the fact that just in recent weeks, the Conservatives are using that as an excuse to uh, change the voting systems for the mayoral election in London and elsewhere to um, first pass the post. Um, so you know it, it, it's quite unbelievable even in my 15 16 months in parliament um, what uh, what uh, pins that the conservatives will spin and on to get to 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 to, get to their way but during my first year in parliament and during the time i was constitutional affairs spokesperson the main passage of legislation was the constituencies act which will see the boundary commissions get underway um in terms of um redefining the 650 seat boundaries in in Parliament and again I found it really quite interesting the arguments the government deployed in favour of those 650 um, seats that uh, apparently you can only really know somebody's an MP of a place if it's first past the post because it's politics of place but the reality is is what they have voted for as a government will mean that uh, the narrow margins of 5% difference Differentiator between the constituencies will mean that there will be lots of conservatives arguing about uh, the boundaries of their seats and potentially being in contest in the next few years. And then the second point is they've completely undermined their arguments by now bringing forward, as they did in the budget, funding to bring uh, to allow overseas voters uh, beyond 15 years to vote. Now that's something we support, but we believe we should have overseas constituencies. you you look at Gibraltar, who had such a significant, I think it was 96% vote for, um, uh, you know, for remaining in the EU and with no MEPs now doesn't really have a legitimate voice in terms of, um, from a British constitutional perspective, but um, the Conservatives um, in their wisdom are agreeing to uh, have new voters but uh, basically you'll just register in the place where you were last registered before you left the UK. So having set these narrow parameters, they have unknown numbers of people going to come back to register to vote in constituencies. So um, another one that will be quite interesting to see. But in terms of the remainder of the chapter, having talked about referendums, the other thing that is coming along, and um, because referendums are binary and, Nobody ends up particularly happy, and I can say that as somebody who was a typical no voter in 2014, married to a typical yes voter, and that is still the case, we're still together, um, but also in relation to 2016 is is referendums, one, don't um, really make great decisions, and two, um, don't really bring people together after the result of them. So what we are definitely seeing, and I think that really is a social democrat approach, is uh, you know the, the rise of deliberative democracy. Um, climate assembly has just happened in Scotland. Local authorities elsewhere have looked at it as well. And when we look at electoral reform and we look at, for example, New Zealand and how they approached um, changing to the first past the post system, I think there are lots of lessons to learn. But from a sort of... Other aspects for me are the fact that um, I am the first female MP elected in North East Fife, Um, a predecessor in the seat was asked with, we may not have agreed on, you know, we may not agreed on universal suffrage, but hopefully he's pleased to see a Liberal back in in the seat, but the reality is, is there are 552 female MPs ever elected to the house of commons so we wouldn't even make up the whole chamber and the reality is is when you look at more proportional systems it delivers better diversity and it's uh, decision makers and parliamentarians as well and that's surely a social democratic foundation too moving on from this my chapters obviously Vince, I'm sure will refer fair to his and um, it's great to see Ian Kearns in it who came to us from Labour in 2018 he spoke after me at the rally in 2018 in Brighton thank the Lord because he just blew us all, <laughs> blew us all away um, and I'm pleased, you know, delighted to see the work he's doing with the Social Liberal Forum. It's also great to see that we've not just limited uh, court uh, contributors to the book to Liberal Democrats, so Roger Lidl, um has a great chapter on public ownership and how we think of that and we are also thinking about topics such as, you know, what does uh, the world of work look like in the future we are now looking you know everybody's got used to working at uh, working from home but have we properly thought about living at work and the implications of that and what it means and so those of you who are getting a copy as a result of being here this evening I hope you very much enjoy it but uh, if you have not if you've come along this evening without purchasing the book um, I very much recommend that you do so as well because for all of us who agree agree in social democratic principles, there's lots for us to think about both as individuals collectively and as a party. And I'm looking forward to hearing the debate this evening. I don't, um, obviously, 1982, um, I think I was at primary school, but interestingly, the other book I have on my shelf here is British Liberal Leaders, and uh, Roy Jenkins is in it. The SCP leaders are all in it. And I just thought I would, to conclude, read out just the comments the opening comments in that chapter. Um, Roy was leader of the Social Democratic Party for less than a year, from July 82 to June 1983, but he was with Shirley Williams, David Owen and Bill Rogers, one of the four founding co-leaders of the party in 81-82, and much the most senior and experienced of the four, the one without whose vision and political weight the party would never have come into being. Jenkins, however, always envisaged the SDP as a catalyst rather than an end in itself, created to work in close alliance with Liberals in the short term, leading naturally to an eventual merger in the longer term, meaning he was also the midwife or godfather of the Liberal democrats And I'm looking forward to even more. Thank you very much.
0: Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Rains. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Praetorains have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their LibDem Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Praetorains are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Praetorains website at praetorains.co.uk slash liberal democrats. This podcast has been sponsored by the Katura Coffee Club, the UK's most environmentally friendly coffee club. There are over 400 independent roasters in the UK, each one crafting coffee in their own unique style. Katura Coffee Club works with some of the best to take you on a voyage of coffee discovery. The Katura Coffee Club delivers ethically sourced and independently roast coffee directly to your door. Each month, you'll receive between two and four bags of coffee and their monthly extract magazine. Even better for Libden podcast listeners, use the code Coffee to save 5% on subscriptions and gift boxes for a limited time only. All Katura Coffee Club boxes are carbon negative and offset the CO2. So why not do some good, enjoy some great coffee, and check out the website, www.katoracoffeeclub.com. Now, back to the podcast.
1: Christine, I will hand over to you, and I know obviously you, you're interested to speak to both Vince and Dick about me mm-hmm. and Roy and Glasgow Hillhead in particular, but it would also be lovely to hear a little bit about how you interviewed Roy Jenkins.
3: Yeah, that was. thank you. First of all, it's nice to see you all. Um, some well-kept faces there. One or you I haven't seen for a while, Fiona. I must get to see you soon. Um, 1982. Yeah, I was a student at Glasgow University. And if you go back to that time and you compare what it was like to be an 18-year-old then interested in politics and an 18-year-old now interested in politics you would have thought at that point that we wouldn't go through a more interesting period than the arrival of Margaret Thatcher, the social disruption that caused the split in the Labour Party, um, and now two centre-ground parties. Wow. But here we are. And, you know, that old Chinese curse about, you know, may you live in interesting times. Well, we're in interesting times again. And it makes you think back to them. And it wasn't just actually one of my first interviews, David. It was the very first interview I ever did. Um, I was very politically minded as a student, but political with a small p. Um, I had decided that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, And I wanted to be a journalist, actually, for all the same reasons that I eventually became a politician, which was that I wanted to make a difference. But over the years, as a journalist, I realized that you don't actually make a difference. You write about other people making a difference and what other people do to improve the world. You don't actually do it yourself very often. You do occasionally, but not very often. Um, And so that was that was my decision in the end. But at that point where I interviewed Roy Jenkins, I was, as I say, a a politics student, politics and modern history. And I was a year behind Charles, who was the president of Glasgow University Union, and who one night gave me a very hard time about the fact that um, I had turned up at the disco and I wasn't drunk, but I couldn't walk because I'd broken my ankle on the way in. (laughs) Um, But Charles was there, and here we had this by-election in Hillhead that was going to be... Earth-shattering, we knew it was going to be different. It was going to be important. And to top it all off, my tutor in politics was Chris Mason, who was a councillor in Glasgow. So I was surrounded by the Liberal Party and the nascent SDP everywhere I looked at Glasgow University in 1982. If there was a time when it was the centre of the political universe, it was then, and it's Probably why I went on to become the black sheep of both sides of my family, because um, I have on my father's side um, a long um, history with the Labour Party and um, more than one Labour MP. And on my mother's side, I have a lot of Tories. <laughs> so I have let them both down. Um, and Maggie Vaughan, um, who's Alistair Darling's wife, too, I'm related by marriage, loves telling people that I'm the black sheep of the family. But there you go. Um, so that's where I was in 1982, just realising what my politics were, being influenced by everything around me. And it seemed at that point, as it does now, that the right way ahead was not Labour. It was not the Conservatives. The right way ahead for a young, politically-minded centre-left person was to go with what was emerging. And Roy Jenkins and Shirley seemed like the figures who would change British politics. And I think looking back to 1982, they did maybe not in the way we anticipated then or those of us outside of it anticipated, but they most certainly did. And I'm certainly grateful um, every day when I go for my coffee at half past eight in the morning for everything that, that they set in, in motion then. So that was my connection to, to Roy. And the interview itself was the most surreal experience I've ever had. I feel tonight I should have a glass of Claret um, in, in his honor, um, but I just remember sitting there as this naive student who'd never interviewed anybody ever before. But when the opportunity came up with um, the it was the broadcasting service and the, the university guardian to do it, I would you know I would have I would have taken what was left of my hockey stick to anybody who got in my way um, to do the interview because he was so important at the time. But. You know, that, those are my thoughts. More importantly, um, they led me onto a career where the two people I'm going to be speaking to now um, had huge um, influence on me on a day-to-day basis. Vince, as um, party leader, um, just after I was elected originally, and Dick, because as, as leader in the Lords, he is hugely influential. In, in what we do on a day-to-day basis um, and strategically as well. So thank you both. Um, lots of points for you. I remember being completely overwrought in Roy Jenkins' presence. But, and there was this feeling, as I say, as he went round Glasgow in an open-top um, Land Rover, I remember playing fanfare for the common man. There was this feeling that there was, you know, change in the air. But you've been a Labour councillor in Glasgow, Vince. You would stood for Glasgow Hillhead in the 1970 general election. So what are your memories of the constituency of Roy and, of course, Tam Gilbraith?
4: Well, yes, you've started at the right place. Um, I'm part of the political history of Hillhead, but but not, um, sadly, for the the Lib Dems. Am I I unmuted? Yeah, yeah. no, I was adopted. I think in '69, um, and I was an distinguished lineage. My predecessor as the Labour candidate uh, had been a man called John Stonehouse, who, as you may remember, <laughs> was um, a postmaster general in the first Wilson governments, and then disappeared to Australia with several people's bank accounts and was never heard of again. Um, so that was that was the um, that was what I was living up to. Um, The dominant theme in in the 1970 election campaign in in, um, Hillhead um, was indeed Mr. Tom Galbraith, who had written some very lurid love letters uh, to the spy vassal, um, starting Darling, etc. And this was a time when I think homosexuality was still illegal, but it was certainly highly unusual. Um, And his main task was to persuade the old ladies of Kelvinside that he actually, he was straight, and he obviously succeeded, uh, judging by the voting. Um, but it was, it was a good campaign until Head was thought to be vaguely winnable, and I got some good support from a, a young Labour MP called Bob McLennan, who subsequently became president of the Lib Dems, uh, from John Smith, who I subsequently went to work for, uh, from Donald Dewar, who had at that stage got a pad down Hindland Road and came out delivering leaflets, um, so you know some of the interesting names of the past were around. the The political context was quite interesting. 1970 it was it was an election fought against hostility to austerity, but this was Labour austerity, uh, and it wasn't very popular then. Um, and I think Roy Jenkins had a part in it, actually, uh, but it was, it, it, it was part of the, you know, it was actually a perfectly correct economic re- response in that context. Uh, the other theme was immigration, which was a very big, even in Glasgow, because Teddy mm-hmm. Taylor, who was a Tory MP at the other side of the city, was a close friend of Enoch Powell, who kept coming up to Glasgow and stirring the pot, and it was an issue that I was involved in because my late wife was Kenyanation, and uh, we'd just come back t- to Britain from Kenya at the time of that drama, which um, hung over the campaign. Um, we then, un- un- unexpectedly, um, Edward Heath, as you know, won the election, and that took us into the new territory of the European Union, uh, which had been killed off by uh, Charles de Gaulle. Um, And in the years when I was a Glasgow city councillor, apart from the local problems, um, Europe was emerging as a really big issue. Um, But the the configuration was different. Um, I I used to go around, you know, mining clubs in Asia and so on, speaking against, uh, speaking for Europe against the um, anti-Europeans who were then led by Robin Cook. Um, so and the, the pro Europeans tended to be Tories and close <laughs> to the CBI, so it was a rather different kind of lineup that, that we had. Because course, the other big debate which was emerging and which was very big at the time was devolution, uh, it wasn't Scottish nationalism. Um, I stood against several Scottish nationalists, and the fact that I was so obviously a English middle class didn't didn't become an issue in, in, in Scotland at the time, um, but devolution as opposed to nationalism was very much a driving issue, and it split the Labour Party because of course there were there was an older generation led by Willie Ross, who was the Secretary of State at the time, who were passionately against any form of devolution and the man who became a close friend personally um, who you may remember, called George Cunningham, was the person who actually put his spoke in the, the wheel of devolution and uh, got the uh, devolution um, referendum postponed effectively for 20 years with consequences, I suspect, we feel today. Uh, just finally say something about Rod Jenkins. I mean, I wasn't in Hillhead in 1982. I was in New York. It was my hometown, and I was the SDP candidate. I joined pretty much at the beginning of the SDP. Um, and got involved in the 83 campaign, and York was one of the seats that was thought to be likely to go. Uh, we didn't. Um, the Falklands War did for us, but um, there was a good chance of winning it, and Roy Jenkins is one of the people who came and campaigned for me. Um, I, I have to say I was a bit apprehensive. I mean, I didn't really go for the plummy voice and, and, the, and the kind of manner. But he—he he actually, when he came to York, he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he, you know, we had meetings with, you know, over five hundred people, very loud, lots of heckling, and he was very down to earth. Took them on and was 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 quite brilliant. But you know, that that was you know politics and of course, the voting was largely tactical, uh, and it was against Labour at the time, uh, and uh, the Tories got in some dreadful wine merchant from East Anglia who has never been heard of since, became MP for a few years. Uh, so that was my introduction to uh, Roy and uh, the great contribution that he that he made. So, sorry, that was more about me than Roy Jenkins, but... No, that,
3: that's it, it, OK. It was, I don't it was, it was quite know how to... I don't quite know how to tell you this, Vince, and I probably shouldn't own up to it, even at this late stage, but in 1970, um, in that election with Tam Gilbraith, my, that other side of my my family, my mother's family, I think they all voted for Tam Gilbraith, so I'm really sorry you have a pass on their apologies now. I'm sure they, they would regret it. Now.
4: Uh, but just, just one thing to add. I, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole saga about... Um, life on Glasgow City Council in the early 70s, but there was one massive event which took place that um, uh, you know, really changed British history. We, we, I remember going on to a branch meeting of the Labour Party in I think about 1973, something like that, uh, and it was announced that the, uh, the party had lifted the ban on prescribed organisations and the few people cottoned on to the significance of it. But within six months, the branch had been flooded with uh, people from militant tendency and the like. And that was what changed the Labour Party. That was what opened the way to the SDP split. And it, uh, it was dated back, really, to that rather obscure bureaucratic decision.
3: That's a really good point, because I think that has often been lost
0: mm. in...
3: Um, discussions about the Labour Party and there were, um, I know there was at least one member of my father's distant family who was, um, who went into the Labour Party from the Communist Party at that time. Mm. So I think that's, that's often been overlooked. But Dick, where are you? Down here somewhere. So if I could just bring Dick in briefly. Nice to see you again. (laughs) It's a long time no see. Um, I did not know until um, I spoke to David about doing this, you had been a civil servant up until 1981. So what was it that, you know, persuaded you to sort of jump the fence almost and join the party? What was it in 1981, 1982
5: that was such an attraction? Well, I've been involved in politics a lot uh, at university and I'd been in the Labour Party uh, from age 18. Um, but I got to a point in the civil service where I couldn't be politically active anymore. Um, and what happened was that in 1981, Geoffrey Howe introduced a, uh, a deflationary budget to deal with inflation, uh, which was he knew, everybody knew, he was going to put uh, unemployment up. And uh, this was opposed by everybody. I was in a, a, a tax policy person in uh, customs and excise. It was opposed by all the senior management in the Treasury, from the permanent secretary down, who were basically old-fashioned Keynesians. Um, And it was realised, just as you did, thinking, if I'm a journalist, I can't influence things. I thought um, I was uh, 28, and I thought, "If, if I stay here, I'm not going to be influencing anything, and I'm going to be implementing things I don't agree with. Um, And I was very lucky, a job came up when the SDP... I knew everybody who was forming the SDP because I'd been involved with the Labour Committee for Europe. Um, And uh, I I, uh, found out with literally um, an intervening night uh, that there was a job going. and I, I had 12 hours to decide whether, in effect, to chuck up a civil service career to apply. And I became head of the Whip's Office for the SDP. But by 1982, I'd gone into party headquarters and I was involved in managing the seat negotiations with the Liberals and uh, getting uh, a a new constitution for the party. So uh, uh, I I was completely hooked. And and for Hill Head, we were all encouraged to go. It was a long campaign uh, starting in January. And uh, I went up for a a weekend and uh, it was in the middle of it. And the weather was wet and horrid. And the only two things I can really remember we stayed at a hotel called the Pond Hotel. Um, and uh, the then chief executive of the party and I were given the job of canvassing tower blocks down by the river. So there were about, I don't know how many t- stories, about 25 stories. So you started off at the top with just two of us and sort of an hour and a half later, you got to the bottom and you came out of the door and there was another one. Uh, and. Uh, That's all I remember. I I don't think I went to a meeting that Roy did, but I mean, he he was extraordinary because he'd never campaigned in his life to the SDP really uh, uh, in a seat because he'd always had safe seats and he never spent much time in his constituency. He was famous for not doing it. Um, But I had been involved at Warrington, where he spent all day every day pounding the streets to such an extent that. Um, despite good dinners every night, he lost two stone in weight during that campaign. Uh, and he did the same in uh, Hillhead. And the, a poll done on the eve of the poll showed that 60% of everybody who voted for him had been personally canvassed, and a quarter had been personally canvassed by him. Um, uh, and it was extraordinary. Um, and he, of course, he was behind all the way through behind 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 um and uh after the event when somebody asked him uh how he when he knew he was uh, likely to win he said oh he said I-, I could see the tide was turning he said when i started to see uh, spontaneous salutations from nodal points which meant that he was on the back of his truck and as he went to a crossroads people had waved um and uh it was it was a you know he was uh, uh, paradoxical in some ways, Roy, because if he'd lost that by-election, having lost in Warrington, his career would have been finished uh, and the uh, SDP would have been in real difficulties. We had to keep the momentum going. But he, he was a really, really hard campaigner. And, of course, uh, uh, Vince was talking about his meeting of 500. Um, there were bigger meetings than that in Hillhead and people out in the schoolyard where yeah. the meeting, you know, uh, and, and it's, so it's very difficult to imagine uh, now that style of campaign. The other thing that was there was another Roy Jenkins stood, uh, and so a number of party staff, fortunately I wasn't one of them, had to stand outside uh, the polling stations wearing an A board, which said vote <laughs> number eight, I think it was, for the real Roy Jenkins. Um, wow. Wow. And That's he, quite a thought. Yeah, he, he uh, as a, a, Roy, you know, was interested in the big picture. Uh, so at Warrington, he'd come up with a, a, a plan for getting unemployment down. And he, he reheated it. And there was a, the Hillhead plan to get unemployment down to, a, down to a million and a quarter. And in the end, you know, the people of Hillhead were more interested in more parochial things, I think. But it was typical of him. He fought, you know, he fought it on the big issues because he was a big issues man, really. Uh, and uh, I always felt it was a huge privilege to work with him. And on the one occasion when he was leader in the Lords and I'd made a speech about something, he'd been standing listening, and he, he, he said, with a look of surprise as I came out of the chamber, he said, that was really, not a bad speech. And I thought, you know, this was the biggest accolade I'd ever had in my life. I, my head swelled with pride. It's a great man. Yeah.
3: You mentioned the other fight that... Um although the SDP had won in Crosby, they'd narrowly lost in Warrington, um, and he wasn't entirely sure that the SDP could gain um, Hillhead, so it was quite a gamble for him, wasn't it? As it, you was said,
5: could it was a gamble. It was a gamble. The person on whom he relied for advice uh, as to whether he should stand was Matthew Oakeshott, because Matthew oh. um, followed the polls and polling and the sophology. Uh Matthew, who is by nature a risk taker himself, um, said, You've got to go for it because you'll be finished if you don't.
3: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, thank goodness he did talk him into it. Yeah. uh, And And Vince, you'd, uh, as we said earlier, you'd stood in 1970, but you'd been a member of the Liberal Party before you'd been in Labour. Um, So, what was it about the SDP? I mean, how much of it do you think was the attraction of people like Roy and and Shirley, or was it something else that attracted you to the SDP?
4: Well, it was it was less the people than than the ideas, I think. I mean, I, as you rightly say, I was um, I was actually president of the Liberal Club at university I was at Cambridge. I succeeded Chris Mason, who had, had the same role. Your tutor, your tutor. Yes, it's yeah. a small world. Um, but while I was president of the Liberal Club, I, I, I couldn't understand uh why we were divided from the there was a group of social democrats in the Labour Party who called themselves uh the Campaign for Social Democracy, headed by a man called Dick Taverne. Uh and I said we should um just merge with them because of course at that stage the Labour Party was completely nuts and you know they were going through <laughs> one of their nowist phases or something, uh, and I tried to get a merger between these two organizations. And I was thrown out of the liberal club because this was apostasy, um, and the social democrats didn't want to know either. So I was in a wilderness, and I finished up supporting the Harold Wilson campaign eventually. But, but I did have that first taste, and what had attracted me into it originally was Joe Grimmond. Mm-hmm. Um, and mainly his European message, he did this absolutely amazing speech at the Liberal Conference in 1961, I think, um, rubbishing in a very, very funny way uh, Gateskills' pompous um, a statement about, you know, British history and so on. And and I was so grabbed by it that I finished up joining the University Liberals and I explained what happened subsequently. But I... I, I was always on that kind of fault line between the Liberals and the Social Democrats. I always have been, and uh, i always tried to get them together in, in different, different contexts. Different contexts.
3: That's one of the things about tonight is also looking back. I mean, what do we think Roy Jenkins' legacy would be? Someone, John Alexander, in fact, has suggested in the chat that we should maybe celebrate it by having a competition. Uh, for weight loss by canvassing teams during the campaign that's coming up. Um, I certainly, I would join that um, after everything in COVID. But what do you think it is? It, we look back now uh, where the party is, where the Liberal Democrats are, where social democracy is within that. But on a larger scale even, what would you, first of all, Vince, what would you say that, that Roy Jenkins' legacy and the SDP legacy has been?
4: Um, well, I, th- I think it's fair to say that, you know, social democracy is in a bit of a crisis generally. I mean, not yeah. just UK, but, you know, internationally. I mean, the, the big social democratic parties have been Sweden, Germany and Britain. Um, Sweden's more or less held up, but it's uh, it's a declining force. Uh, the German social democrats have been mm. fairly close to being eliminated by the Greens, Um And we have our own tradition here where the Social Democrats have been effectively split in two and some stayed in the Labour Party and some left. And as a result, we finished up as a a kind of weakened influence. Um, No, I I I think we we will come back. Um, There will be a, um, I think, a revulsion against this government. People will be looking for an alternative and it will be out of the the set of values and the kind of people who um, formed the SDP Liberal Alliance originally and then the Lib Dems. I mean, I think that that will get its journey back. Um, But in terms of Roy's own legacy, of course, uh, Europe was at the heart of it. I mean, that was what ultimately created the break. Um, We're now in limbo. Um, but I, I, I suspect that in 10 years' time, you know, we will be going back to a lot of those arguments. Mm. This is a bit like the uh, the Punic Wars, um, you know, Carthage and all that. I mean, it will probably take three or four uh, rounds of warfare before we finally finish mm. the European question. And I suspect it will come again and his legacy and his contributions to... Making Britain part of Europe, which are now being trashed, will be revitalised. I think that that is the central issue, which uh, which will make him.
3: Thank and and Dick, what about you? What do you what do you think where we where we are? How much of where we we've been and as much as where we are was down to that influence of of Roy, Roy Jenkins specifically, and and the original four.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, I think he had. I mean, there are three things that he, you know, I think he will be remembered for. One is is Europe, obviously. Mm. Um, the other is all the social legislation he passed. You know, in a period of uh, eighteen months, he passed three or four absolute landmark bills, or oversaw the passage of landmark bills to do with uh, abortion, homosexuality, uh, uh, and other issues. Um, And the third thing he did uh, when he became chancellor, he was prepared to take difficult decisions for a longer term economic end. Um, And with all those three areas, what what I think he he demonstrated is that if if you have convictions and you go for it and you don't um, uh, swerve from them, you achieve a lot more than, than what we see now, for example, with the Labour Party, which can't can't move because it's going to offend someone. Roy never worried about that. Because he was in he was in uh he was in politics to change things. Um and to argue them really vigorously, as Vince said, you public meetings then were, were, were not the same kind of uh, milk and water thing you have today, and even Harold Wilson when he came to Oxford when I was there, and spoke during the seventy-four election, was roundly heckled. But but you know you took your arguments to people, and you you you, you absolutely um, stood up for them. And I think that it's not just the content of what Roy think um, built on liberal and social democratic uh, traditions, but it's the way he did it. The fearlessness of doing it, sense of humour in doing it, and also actually um, uh, doing it and and uh, en, you know enjoying it. I mean, he wasn't yeah. a, he wasn't a dull person, Roy. I mean, he was a two good meals a day toss of chap, <laughs> uh, and um, you know he he enjoyed life to the full as well as uh, working very very hard. And I think that's a bit of a lesson uh, mm. for everybody. Not that I necessarily advocate drinking quite as much as he
3: did. How do do we get that back, though? How do we... There's there's an entire generation now. We all remember um, Roy Jenkins. We all know how the party started. um, But there's an entire generation for whom it's, it's history, even for their parents. Now, how do we get back that kind of sense of purpose with the public what is it we need to to reinvigorate that communication, that engagement? What? How? How do we get that back? What? And what can Roy himself? What can looking at his legacy teachers that we've lost and we need to get back? A uh, sorry. Well,
5: yeah. Um, well, what what he demonstrated was was a. Uh, uh, First of all, a set of beliefs, an intellectual rigour in in thinking about how you deal with problems. And then just leadership, I I think, um, uh, and passion. You know, I think that's, at the moment, as a political class, um, the country has a very poor view of us, and I absolutely understand why. But as far as we're concerned, as Lib Dems, my general view is they shouldn't have a poor view of us because we are not like uh, either the, you know, the Tories who are only interested in, you know, supporting their chums and enjoying being in, in uh, power. Uh, and we're not um, sitting on the fence in the hope that, you know, to mix metaphors, the wheel will turn and it will be our turn back in government. So we, we've got strong beliefs. We've got to articulate them. I personally think that we the biggest challenge to me when I do meetings isn't to party members because they're already converted but it's to students how do we get Mm. someone like you or me or Vince as as a young person who's idealistic wants to improve the world what is it that we say that makes them think yeah that's what I want to go with and I, I think we've got to we can't just do we can't simply have the the narrative we've had up to now I mean the biggest thing to me where we've got to offer a different narrative has to do with what sort of society do we want to live in that, that is actually possible now that we've run up against all the constraints of uh, biodiversity in the environment and growth in itself, mm-hmm. as we knew it, is impossible. So what are we going to say about that? What are we going to say about the, with the sort of capitalism we want? Do we? You know, I'm a great fan of this the, the concept of impact capitalism, which says that we ought to be legislating to require what used to be called the triple bottom line, companies' purpose should require them to account for their uh, costs on the environment and their impacts on society. But I think when you put all this lot together, it's a vision of a different sort of uh, world. Um, And uh, if we can do that uh, and articulate it with, with passion, I think we can do very well. Because everybody knows that we can't go on as we are. But they don't know what, well, if we don't go on as we are, uh, what's the alternative? What's a different yeah. framework uh, for for uh, going on? And, and I think we can provide one, actually. Uh,
4: I, I, just right. add a, I just add a couple of things to that. Yeah. Um, I agree with Dick's overall approach. Um, I mean, if you go back to the things Roy did, I mean, first of all, there was the whole kind of personal liberalism agenda, which at the time was very courageous. It was about you know, we were in a very conservative social environment. It was quite authoritarian. Uh, and to argue for gay people, to argue for abortion rights or, or divorce or whatever it was, required quite a lot of political courage. And we're going into a, an environment now where, where kind of authoritarianism, is creeping back in all kinds of ways and making the, the case for freedom in, the, in an old fashioned liberal way. Um, is something he was very good at and we're gonna have to do all over again. I think the second thing I would stray, he was an austerity chancellor yep. in the tradition of Stafford Cripps. Um, and austerity has been allowed to become a dirty word by the left, which takes the view that, you know, free things for everything and you never have to make any choices. Whereas his approach to economic policy was that you, you have to set priorities and you mm-hmm. have to make choices. And at some point, you know the left is going to have to face up to that kind of world they'll never get back into power. Um and he was uh, you know an exemplar of somebody who made that case but in a progressive way.
3: Mm. That Vince, I was I, I was going to just briefly ask you um what you would say to your successors as leader now. What is the main thing that and those of us around them we have to we have to grasp, we have to take forward.
4: Well, I, I had two two very simple mantras, really, which are the ones I had as leader, except the Europe issue, of course, has gone. I mean, the first is rebuilding the base through local government. I mean, naturally, that wasn't part of the Roy Young Kid's legacy. That was more from <laughs> the liberal side, but it, it's, it's, it matters. It works. If you don't have a base, then you can't operate as a political party and you demonstrate competence at a local level. That's how you build up a sense of community and the values around it. So you start with local and you build up your local government base again. And then the secondly, um, which is more controversial in the party, is you work as part of a broader progressive consensus and you're not afraid to work with Greens and in certain contexts with Labour people and uh, of course, one thing we did get at the end of the last parliament was an agreement with the Greens and the Welsh nationalists didn't help us in the event because we were overwhelmed by bigger no. forces. But, um, you know, restructuring that kind of relationship um, with people who, with whom we're aligned in the Tory party and who, well, many of whom left now uh, and and with, you know, progressive Labour people. That's the kind of collaboration we're going to have to do in a grown up way.
3: Thank you. Well, I'm going to say something I don't often say now, which is say, which is uh, I'm going to be quiet now um, and take some some questions from from the audience, the audience, any of any um, any questions any of you want to, to put either to to Vince or or Dick or points you want to make about everything we've been talking about tonight.
1: Thank you, Christine, for chairing. For uh, that was really interesting. But um, yeah, if people want to put some questions in the chat, I will uh, I will read them out. I will start probably first with uh, John Alexander, who asked the question, uh, which is kind of terrifying me slightly, and I'll, I'll put it to Dick and then Vince, which is, what apparently can I do to get a 500-person meeting within Glasgow Kelvin Uh, like Roy Jenkins did so and he said please remember we're pre-watershed so nothing nothing a bit untoward but Dick I'll ask you first what do you think and I think what John's actually asking here is what can I do to get people engaged and wanting to
5: hear what we have to say yeah well I mean I think the question is what do they want to get engaged in I mean, it's, it's no use talking to people about things that are no interest to them what is worrying them about what's going on at the moment in Scottish politics uh, and uh, might they uh, agree with you about um, I don't know what that is um, uh, I don't know whether whether the I mean one, as I say one of the things about hill head was that local issues sort of uh, came into the frame a lot more uh, than um, uh people thought I mean my first I think that the the starting point is that you you certainly won't, even if you could have a meeting which you can't you you wouldn't be looking to have a meeting you would be looking to engage with people on Facebook probably um around something you know getting people to agree with something petitioning on something saying we want to get I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a thousand people to agree with me on x so I can do y that sort of thing I mean it's 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 not rocket science, but it's, and it is hard work, but that's, that, I think, given where we're starting from and you're starting from, I think that's the way to begin it.
4: Thank you, Dick. Vince, any thoughts? Well, I, I think my answer is probably slightly dispiriting in a sense that the, the, the occasions when I used to get 500 people meetings in Twickenham, which I did, um, were always about local planning. Um, if you'd have a big picture meeting, nobody would turn up. But if you uh, wanted to, you know, a meeting about a a block of four houses at the end of the road, everybody would turn out. And of course, it was a lot of it was very narrow and nimbious. But the big message, I think, was that people do care about their local communities. And that's what you've got to start with. And you've got to shape it and direct it in a hopefully in a constructive and progressive way and homeless people have got to have homes, etc. cetera. But um, you start with the local and that's in a way where, where many people's focus currently is.
1: Thank you, Vince. And I've got a question here from uh, Duncan Brack. Obviously Duncan is very well known for being uh, probably the Liberal Democrats prime historian. So thank you, Duncan. So Duncan asks a question for the panel and Christine, I suppose you can join in in this as well if you want. Um, what do you think is the difference, if any, between social democracy and social liberalism? So, Vince, I'll ask you first. Uh, I, I honestly find
4: it quite difficult to answer that. I mean, because I, I, I meet social democrats and social liberals who um, are, are passionate. I mean, it, it, I mean, if I was wanting to be rude, I'd call it the narcissism of small differences, um, because I don't think they're great. It's just a, it, I think what's happening essentially, people are coming from a different direction. I mean, Social, social democracy comes out of socialism it's it's a, a more um, qualified version of it. Uh, social liberalism comes out of liberalism with a social dimension but actually they they come very close together um, and i I find it in you know we have this argument within our own party as to whether we should have two separate groups of people campaigning for these two separate things and I honestly find it quite difficult. I I urge them to work together because actually neither group in isolation is a terribly powerful force. Thank you, Vince.
1: Dick?
5: No, I I agree with that now. I mean, I think the difference between uh, the way that liberals with a large and small L looked at things and the way that the SDP did, um, even though they wanted very much the same outcomes, the SPP and the Social Democrats and the Labour Party and socialism was basically an economic doctrine. It wasn't a doctrine of of individual rights. It started off with with, um, a a method of of managing society through the use of resources in an equitable manner, largely directed by the state, or directed to a certain extent by the state. Whereas the liberal strand starts off with with the, 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 the mill view that society should allow individuals to uh, have the maximum freedom of of, of action within constraints and then with the new liberals that in order that those freedoms to be exercisable equally you had to intervene in people's lives to provide them with things like education um, and health uh, and a whole raft of things and these things sort of came together and I think now um, there isn't uh, much difference, really. Um, I, th- I think uh, one of the things about politics is that people very often like being parts of little gangs. The Labour Party is an organisation, I always think of armed gangs and if you're not in a gang uh, you know you, you don't stand any chance um, and uh, the advantage of being in a little gang, it's comfortable and you, you can all get round a table in the pub um, but um I I agree with Vince. I I, I think we sometimes enjoy dancing on the head of a pin. Thank you,
1: Doug. Christine, do you have any thoughts?
3: I think actually that dancing on the head of a pin is exactly what we do when we start to, we go off down a rabbit hole, which is actually in some ways a distraction from what we want to achieve. If we start arguing about the difference between liberal socialism and social democracy, then we lose the impetus to actually make the change that we want to see. So I think it's more important that we have come together and that we do um, work together. The two sort of ideals have merged into one and that we now take it forward. Then we we spend too much time thinking about how we got there.
1: Thank you, Christine. So here's another interesting question from Clive Jones, where he said uh, 68% of the members of the SDP had never belonged to a political party before they joined the SDP. And it was the breaking the mold of British politics that was the attraction that got them to join. And he asked, what can we do to try and appeal to people today that maybe have never been involved in politics to get them to join the party? And and Vince, I'll put that to you as a former leader.
4: Um, well, I was uh, looking to my wife for inspiration because she's somebody who sees somebody who joined the SDP on day one, having never been a member of a political party, and what was the where I, I was a political pro, which is how today we get people like you to join a party for the first time.
6: Oh, yes, Golly. Um, yes, well, I think at the time, I, I, in a way, joined it, but in a way, are rather negative reasons that I really couldn't bear thatcher anymore um so it was only a negative rather than a positive which is a rather bad reason um i then actually discovered rather late in the day that my parents were liberals but i didn't actually know that before i joined the sdp (laughs) um and how would we do it now how would we get people who know the political party i suppose the trouble is you have to persuade people of the point of any political party to get them to join one now. And that's that's quite tricky because um, there are more parties, for one thing, you know, there's Greens. I mean, I suppose that I feel closest philosophically to, closer to the Greens than any other apart from ourselves. Um, and uh, I think you have to say to people that things won't get better on their own they, they, they i just thought we just have to stand up and be counted i'm talking about 1983 roughly two three mm. um and at the moment i mean with with the tory government which is both well it's partly bonkers but it's um it's quite authoritarian bonkers that i think there are a lot of people who would think then I mean, we really can't go on going down this road and we you have to stand up and be counted and there are better models and you know ours is a better model for how to get society better uh, End I, of.
4: i mean i think the one thing i would add um need, which goes goes back to uh, um my period as leader it wasn't a great success i have to confess but but one of the things i was grappling with was Uh, How do you get hold of people who don't want to join what they think is a rather inward-looking club, a bit like the Masons, um, have a broader movement that they feel more comfortable with, a bit more the modern idiom, uh, rather than joining and having a ticket and belonging to certain exclusive meetings? And I think we have to try and create that sense of a, a broader movement uh, which engages people around a set of values uh, rather than is too uh, is too exclusive.
1: Thank you, Vincent. I would say we, you're doing yourself down a little bit there. I joined the party when you were leader, and it was oh, all right. Oh. I joined the party, so so uh, you you obviously attracted some some good level of new membership. Although I don't fall into the category of never being involved in politics. Prior to <laughs> Dick, do you have any thoughts on what we could do to engage people that maybe not been political before?
5: Well, just thinking back to the SDP, people joined the SDP uh, out of frustration as much as anything else because they felt that they'd got got a very right-wing Tory government uh, doing damage to the economy and they uh, felt that there was an irresponsible Labour Party. And they also felt, and this was key, that there were strong leaders for the, in the SDP who could um, uh, run the country. Uh, and this is where I think uh, we've got to put a lot of effort on local building local leaders, because we have got people uh, in parliament who could run the country, but not very many of them. Uh, and uh, we're never going to be able to replicate the um, appeal of the Gang of Four, which was here are four people who could take the four leading positions in, in any government and do the job well because they've done it before. So I think the context rather different, but it goes back to um, people, people will be, people are rather, uh, a lot of people at the moment feel that the country's adrift, that Brexit's a disaster, that uh, Boris uh, is a disaster, um, and that the country uh, is going in a right-wing direction, um, and uh, this, this goes against everything they believe. So it's a, and I, what we've got to persuade people is that we, rather than anybody else, are the best people who, who understand those problems and actually have got a, a determination and a programme uh, to do something about it.
1: Thank you, Dick. And Christine, you you wanted to come in on this point as well. Oh, you're on mute, Christine.
3: To happen once. I think um, Dick and Vince are both absolutely right. Although Vince, I do think, was very successful as leader and um, because he did get us to the position where we were able to um, have such a successful period in, twi- in uh, i very nearly said 1918, 2018 um, under your leadership. So, But I think that frustration that you both talked about, people being frustrated with where we are, we are beginning to see again now because of COVID-19 and Brexit, specifically because of Brexit. And I think it's important that it is that general feeling of frustration and dissatisfaction rather than the specific issue of Brexit because we've seen that when you either win the the argument as as UKIP did, then there's no point in them anymore. People don't need them anymore. And it's been quite difficult for us, having, if you like, lost the argument about um, remaining in the European Union for the moment, until that frustration builds up and people begin to see the damage. It's quite difficult for us. But I think We are at a point in British politics almost where we were after Margaret Thatcher won where there was an entire generation who were leaving school and university and thinking that this government could offer them nothing. Not only that, this government didn't want to offer them anything. It didn't care. It would throw up six-month-long projects for them to have temporary jobs. Um, It just saw them as a a workforce, a machine, and the Labour Party had lost their way um, and gone very far to the left. And I, th- I think we're, Keir Starmer's not obviously going very far to the left, but I think we're almost at that position with this government. There'll be an entire generation who'll come out of university, come out of school, have been through COVID-19 and feel the government did nothing for them. There'll be no jobs and there'll be that frustration. And then they might turn to political parties, if we get our messaging right, if we speak to them and communicate properly, then they might come to us. But the people who are in control of that actually are us. We have to go out there and make the case for them to come and join us and make ourselves attractive and be the answer to their frustrations and offer solutions that will fix what is driving them away from not just the government, but from politics.
1: Thank you, Christine. If, and I mean, if I could indulge myself just quickly uh, on, on this point as well. Um, Alistair Carmichael, when I joined the party, used a really good phrase when we had a conversation about where he felt I was politically, which he said um, after we had a chat, he said, you know, David, and Alistair had known my father and he'd known him when he, was a, when he was a Labour MP. And he said, you know something, David? He said, you're what I like to call a misplaced liberal. He said, you, you've been in the Labour Party everything we've talked about is pretty much 99.9% where I sit in politics and the conversation that we had and the things that actually I'd always been interested in and I'd always fought for within the Labour Party I then quickly realised were actually all positions that the Liberal Democrats took so just to give a couple of examples I started the uh Uh, and and the young Fabians, the devolution uh, group and also local government, which was all about how do we take power from big government and disseminate it down to the lowest possible level. Um, I talked as well about looking at, you know, when we had the the, the vote on the alternative vote, um, I was on the side of backing that we needed to have political and electoral reform. And I think you find the majority of the general public are actually on board with that view. And then last but not least, I guess the point where I kind of maybe realised that the Lud Dems would actually probably be my home. And there might be some people who don't like me for saying this, but um, I'd been asked to deputise at last minute for um, Annalisa Dodds in a a debate with Kelvin Hopkins during the EU referendum. Uh, Kelvin Hopkins, obviously the former MP for Luton. Um, And it was extremely last minute. She couldn't make it. Um, She was an MEP at the time and asked if I could do it because I lived in Reading at the time which is where the debate was happening and somebody at the back of the room stood up and there was packed out with people from the far left and said I have in my hand here Labour's 1983 manifesto where we committed to leaving the European economic community you tell me what's changed about that and why I should listen to you in supporting staying a member of the European Union and my answer was very frank I said well first of all I wasn't even born in 1983 <laughs> Um, So, that manifesto was slightly lost on me, and I said, but secondly, um, I said, there's a whole host of factors that have dramatically changed since then, and that's when I realised that there's a section of the Labour Party that's just never going to move on from that debate, and my politics was all about what's the future of the country, not constantly looking back into an inward-looking argument about what socialism is or what social democracy is and how that affects the party, and the second point i would say in that debate that maybe made me realize i was a lived Dem, um i actually quoted nick clegg when i gave that speech um on his views of the eu and and that didn't ingratiate me to the room i'll tell you that but <laughs> so i appreciate vince you've as we talked about roy jenkins liked a good dinner you've got a dinner to get to and we're probably keeping you from that and so to close off i just wanted to say thank you so much everybody in taking the time to to come along tonight and and to support my campaign in Glasgow Kelvin and and the money that you spent in joining us has gone towards us reaching way more people than we've reached uh, with leaflets in Glasgow Kelvin in a long long time so I really do appreciate that and last but not least I'd like to say thank you so much to our panel who agreed to come on tonight Wendy had to leave us early but Wendy thanks so much for joining and Christine thank you so much for doing a wonderful job of of chairing and, and asking the questions and last but not least to both. Uh, Vince and Dick, thank you so much for being kind enough to give up your time and I know, Dick, you you were running at last minute to get home, so I appreciate you making that last ditch ever to get home and thanks for everybody for joining and I hope you have a lovely evening and I hope I can do something good in Glasgow Kelvin come Maytime.
3: Thank you and good
2: luck.
1: Thank you. Good luck. Thank you, everybody.
2: Have a lovely See evening. See you soon.
1: Bye.